London, and this is a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Joining us for episode 19.5 in this series is award-winning science writer and host of The Other Side of Midnight, the legendary Richard C. Hoagland in the high desert of New Mexico. He is a science writer and consultant in the fields of astronomy, planetarium curating, and space program education. In 1965, at the age of 19, he became curator of the Springfield Science Museum in Springfield, Massachusetts. The following year, he served as NBC television consultant for the historic soft landing of a U.S. spacecraft on the moon and appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. During the Apollo 8 Lunar Orbital Mission on Christmas of 1968, he was asked to become a consultant to CBS News and served for many years as science advisor to Walter Cronkite. Together with Carl Sagan, Mr. Hoagland co-created the Pioneer Plaque and predicted life on Europa in his groundbreaking paper, The Europa Proposal, published 37 years before NASA's announcement. He served for 10 years as a consultant for the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, contributing documentation on the Orbiting Astronomical Observatory Project. For the last several decades, he has led an outside scientific team in a critically acclaimed independent analysis of possible intelligently designed artifacts on the Viking images of Mars. In 1993, he was awarded the International Angstrom Medal for Excellence in Science for his research. Mr. Hoagland appeared regularly as the science advisor on Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell and later with George Norrie and co-produced the radio program The Night of the Encounter on WTIC-AM in Hartford, Connecticut, which covered the July 14, 1965 Mariner 4 flyby of the planet Mars. He is the author of The Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever, published in 1987, and co-author with Mike Barra of Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA, which reached the New York Times bestsellers list in 2007. Currently, he serves as principal investigator of the Enterprise Mission, which he founded in 1992, and is the creator and host of the late-night weekend radio show The Other Side of Midnight, airing Saturday and Sunday nights at midnight Eastern. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode, in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Friday, June 4th, 2021, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Richard. (laughs) Hi, Laura. Hi. How did you find that stuff about NBC? Well, I didn't know I didn't know that stuff about NBC. So that was so amazing because well I I was I was still in high school, I think. I have to think back, and you know, and we had a vacation. You know, schools did used to have kind of planned vacation periods. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine and I decided, because I was in Springfield, Massachusetts, we decided that we would take a trip to New York. 
which was, you know, like three or four hours just driving south. So we, you know, yeah. got on the highway and drove to New York and, you know, we're kind of palling around. And uh, I had a friend of mine at, uh, at NBC, Peter Hackus, who was the space correspondent that I had been in touch with. In those days, you know, the only way to talk to someone was by phone or letter. Remember letters? Yes. <clears throat> you know, do. physical thingies with pens and yep. ink and, you know, blobby shirts and all. Anyway, so – um, I wanted to show my friend Bruce uh, NBC because I kind of snuck in there when I was in high school. Uh, I would go to New York, you know, randomly, occasionally, and I would wear a suit and I'd carry a briefcase. And I was at that time 16 or 17. And I would literally just go up to Studio 8H with a briefcase, get in the elevator, go up and sit there while they taped the Huntley and Brinkley uh, nightly television show. And no one questioned me. No one stopped me. If you if you look like you're where you you know where you're going in life, mm. few people will stop you. That was a very early lesson that was extracurricular out, outside of school. It has stood me in good stead in many many cases mm. since. So um, I just kind of wanted to show my friend, you know, where I would hang out when I went to New York. And um, I'm trying to think back now, kind of here in real time. So we went to. Um, uh, you know, to kind of, you know, I wanted to show him that studio and we went up in the elevators and we debouched in like the little lobby and then walked across the hall to Studio 8H. It's a very famous NBC studio. All kinds of historic things have been done out of 8H. And they were preparing to cover live that night the first unmanned landing of Surveyor 1 on the moon. This was like June 1st, June 2nd of 1966, a, a date that will live in, uh, not infamy, but, you know, fame. Anyway, so, you know, we're, I'm, we're kind of standing there in the corner, and there's technicians running around, and there's saws, and there's, you know, they're basically building a set. And the guy who was going to anchor was a very famous uh, television personality in New York at that time for Channel 4, uh, named uh, Frank Field. He was the NBC meteorologist. He was on the Today Show. He did, you know, local NBC affiliate, which was Channel 4. Um, and so we're kind of just trying to be as unobtrusive and not get in the way. And I'm watching these burly technicians uh, manhandling a huge globe of the moon. Mm -hmm. Actually, it wasn't a full globe. It was a half globe. Because, of course, you can't see the other side, so all they needed oh, for television right. was the side you can see. Yeah. So it was it was made by um, – I, I think it was – the Geographic had commissioned – National Geographic magazine and the, the um, society had commissioned uh, models, three-dimensional models for museums of the, this uh, – of the moon and of the earth. And they had cast them in – I forget what kind of lustrous plastic with all the colors and everything – basically embedded in the plastic. So they were incredibly realistic, and this was network television. So they'd somehow probably bought it <clears throat> for several, in those days, tens of thousands of dollars, and they were hanging it up to be behind uh, Frank as the cameras you know, were working the set, and he was talking about Surveyor landing on the moon. And I'm kind of intrigued because I my background was – Simultaneously, while I was in high school, I was also at the museum in Springfield, 
And that's how I became the curator of astronomy and space science at the very, very tender age of nine. You know, it might might have been nineteen point five. I got to go back and <laughs> I'm check sure that. Sure, it was. It had it's to have kinda, been. Isn't that kind of yeah? It's kind of weird. Anyway, so we're you know, I mean, my friend Bruce, you know, who would, I think he'd come with me when I'd done a couple of local um, uh, television shows on Proven Mountain, which was the, um, I think it was an NBC affiliate, ten miles west of Springfield, Massachusetts, where I would do. Uh, as part of my job at the museum, I basically opened up a whole, you know, this is television in the era of NASA and space and all that. So I had dragged him up there a couple of times. So he was familiar with how television behind the scenes worked. Because in those days, it was all magic. It was mm-hmm. all, you know, I mean, we're talking leave it to beaver time. Come on. Yeah. So people were enthralled with television and the magic of behind the scenes. Jack Parr was was you know had just quit and Johnny Carson had taken over oh, the Tonight right. Show, so it was all it was all really new. So for him, this was a real treat to kind of see you know how networks as opposed to local stations, uh, you know, did this stuff. So we're standing there, we're watching, and I'm watching these guys hauling up uh, this huge plastic hollow front side of the moon to hang behind Frank Fields when the in the in the shot. And I said to myself, "Uh uh-oh. And Bruce said, what? I said, they're hanging the moon upside down. Mm. So (laughs) being so shy and retiring and reticent, I went over to – I forget who I went over to. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, guys, you're hanging the moon upside down. And it turned out to be Frank Field. Mm. You know, he turned around and he said, what? So I explained who I was. You know, I was this curator from this museum in Springfield, Massachusetts. Didn't mention I was still in high school. And um, I said, you know, I I work with this stuff and you're hanging the moon upside down. So suddenly everything stops. And, uh, you know, remember, because in those days, everything was unionized. You couldn't pick up a pen on the set without, I mean, my first time with Cronkite, I had this like, I looked like Halley's Comet. Because instead of taking all my stuff to brief uh, Cronkite on the set, I had to walk on and they all had to carry the stuff behind me, guy after guy after guy with papers and photographs and whatever. I look like Halley's Comet winding my way between the cameras. Mm. This is years later. Anyway, so welcome to network unionized television, you know, workers. So anyway, so it was it was one of those situations where. You know, you, you, you've seen the movie where someone says the king is dead and then someone, another hero says louder, the king is dead. And then three people say, the king is dead. Well, this prop, this way propagated because this kid standing in the corner of the set says they're hanging the moon upside down. Mm. Charlie, the moon's upside down. What? Charlie, you got to turn <laughs> the moon upside down. Charlie, it's upside, you know, turn it. This, this went on for like an hour. And finally, it got turned right side up, and then Field came over to me, and he said, "Um, how would you like to be a consultant tonight when we land on the moon? And that was the beginning of my network career in network television. I love it. I love it. So that led to you working with Walter Cronkite. Yeah, many years later, maybe, what, 66, this would be now two years later, 68, mm-hmm. toward the end of the year, uh, they were coming up to Apollo 8, 
which was going to break with all traditions. And there's a long backstory, and my clock says 19.5 as I'm going through this, um, which I won't go into because we don't have time. It's only a two-hour show, right? Right. So the thing was I, I, I got a phone call at the museum. Um, I think I was at the museum. Yeah, I was at the museum. Uh, and it was from New York. And the switchboard operator had put it through. Uh, you know, and they had called for Mr. Hoagland. <clears throat> Nobody called me Mr. Hoagland in Springfield in those days. Anyway, so uh, I picked up the phone, and uh, there was a guy at the other end, and he said, Hi, uh, my name is Frank Manitsis. I am associate producer with CBS News Special Events. Uh, we'd like you to help us go to the moon. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's out of favor now, but there, remember that old Bill Cosby line? where God talks to him at the top of a very steep hill in San Francisco. And he, no, and I don't know that one. God says, uh, uh, Bill, and he says, what? what? Uh, Bill, he says, who is this? This is God. And Crosby says, back in the days when we all liked Cosby, uh, yeah, who is this really? So that was my reaction. Right. Okay, you know, right. Frank CBS, who is this really? Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be totally for real. Uh, I made the appointment to drive to New York and be wined and dined at the CBS uh, headquarters uh, studios there on uh, West 57th Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the beginning of an extraordinary, you know, it's kind of like that line out of Casablanca, a beautiful friendship because uh, I had all kinds of adventures with CBS and Cronkite and, you know, borrowing ocean liners and trying to rendezvous with, you know, paper boats in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean during the Apollo mission landing on the moon. All kinds of amazing stuff happened because uh, this guy called me and said, I'm Frank Manesis, would would you like to help us go to the moon? Mm -hmm. And that was during the Apollo 8 mission, which was in 1968? This was, no, 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 this was before. Before. Uh, that, it was supposed to leave in December. It was literally the Christmas week launch. And they spent Christmas and Christmas Eve and Christmas orbiting the moon. Remember right. that? Oh, yeah. So this, this was like in October. Okay. And I'd been knowing this was happening, and I'd been thinking um, that I should, you know, probably try to do something beyond just there at the museum. And I was looking at uh, Channel 5, which in those days, it was, it was uh, WTTG out of New York. It was a kind of a, a private channel that was at network level caliber um and that was before fox that was before fox right. took over all um but you know again in, in a couple three days the phone rang and there it was cbs and and uh, it was the beginning of an extraordinary set of adventures so now apollo 8 wasn't originally uh, scheduled to orbit the moon was it that was kind no. of a last minute thing and that was our first time actually going to the moon we didn't land but it was in preparation for the landing a year later yeah it was all kind of out of sync because um you know for those that have now kind of grown up on the space program you know how incredibly complicated and uh cantankerous various things are when you're trying to you know, produce several different sets of spacecraft and rockets that all have to work together like this extraordinarily expensive orchestra. Sometimes certain parts of the system are not ready when other parts of the system are. And this was a problem because uh, 
um, they had, had planned, I think, on Apollo 8, the original had been to fly the lunar module, which was made in a company called Grumman Aircraft uh, out on, in, on Long Island in mm-hmm. a place called Bethpage. Um, and the lunar module, the LEM, LM, was not ready. Mm-hmm. So the Russians were very aggressive. They had just sent several unmanned spacecraft uh, looping around the moon, returning to the Earth, entering the atmosphere, landing in the ocean, being picked up, and uh, you know relaying imagery because they'd taken automatic cameras to, to, to photograph the moon. And we all thought, given that there was this huge rocket uh, that was on the pad in the, in the Soviet Union, the N1, that they were going to try to beat uh, Kennedy's goal of being the first on the moon. So people were very despondent at NASA because the the lunar module was not ready. <clears throat> so in one of the most imaginative and totally unexpected non-bureaucratic reactions of any government agency that I can ever you know, think of now in history, um, the upper echelons at NASA decided to take the Apollo 8 mission, which was supposed to be a high-looping orbit around the Earth, maybe out to 20, 30,000 miles in a big, long loop to test uh, docking procedures and the lunar module and all that in Earth orbit. <clears throat> and they decided to send the Apollo 8 mission out of Earth orbit, into lunar orbit, without a lunar module uh, spending, I think, 10 orbits. And each orbit around the moon is about two hours, if I remember correctly. Height, altitude, gravity, all that. Um, and that would have been this stunning, you know, at the moon, basically to blunt the propaganda win if the Russians really did pull off what we thought from a variety of sources uh, they were going to try to do, which is their own mission, lunar mission, to upstage Kennedy's Kennedy's goal, his, his dream. And so they repurposed Apollo 8 without a lunar module to leave Earth orbit and go to the moon or orbit it 10 times and then come back and splash down the Pacific and, uh, um, you know, be, become the first modern humans. Of course, in those days, I didn't think in those terms. Now, of course, I have a much different view of our ancient, ancient past in the solar system and who we really are and what we've really done and how our history has been kind of suppressed for reasons we can get into. It's only a two-hour show, so not enough time to do it all. Anyway, so this was a big, big deal. You know, Remember when Biden turned to Obama during the you know, health care thingy and he said in a stage whisper, this is a big blankety-blank deal? Well, Apollo 8 was a big deal. Because remember, we had come off just a few years before, in 67, uh, the Apollo fire, which had killed seven human, uh, six, uh, three human beings. Three, yeah. Yeah, yeah. crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and uh, that had been such a shock, both for the agency and for the country, that within like a year plus, because we're now talking uh, um, 68 uh, it would have been uh, January 67, right. January 68, December 68, within like less than two years, yeah. we're ready to go and do something that humans have, according to our history then, never done, mm-hmm. which is go to the moon. And that's why this phone call was so amazing, because somebody at CBS 
wanted me to be part of history. And it was one of those, you know, pinch me. Am I, am I dreaming or is this all for real? Mm-hmm. And it was real. It was real. And you stayed uh, during the uh, subsequent Apollo missions as well. And you didn't, you weren't just in the studio in New York. You were actually at the Cape. They sent us to the Cape. They sent us to, to California to do, you know, because during Apollo 11, which was, of course, July of 69, uh, it's amazing what happened between, you know, December of 68 and yeah. July of 69. So much incredible telescoped history. An awful lot of things happen. I get to meet an awful lot of people. It's amazing where you can get into when you pick up the phone and say, hi, my name is, you know, Dick Hogan from CBS News. Doors fly open. People want to tell you their life stories. It's, they open files. It's a, it, 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 it was so heady to be, I think I was, what, 20, 22, 23 at that time? And it was like literally, um, I mean, the first time I was in the in the control room, I sat you know, kind of like in remember the bridge set in 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 Star Trek. You know the yeah. you know the captain's chair, and then that was kind of like the arrangement in the control room at CBS. Okay. And I sat kind of like where uh, Spock would have sat to uh, you know speak with Kirk over his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Except instead of Kirk, we had our executive producer Robert Wessler. And he was kind of in the center of these rows and rows of people looking at screens and monitors and all that because it, it took like – I counted them one day – 45 television monitors in the control room alone to keep us on the air, to keep the CBS News television network on the air mm-hmm. all over the world. We were just beginning the era of satellites and all that, and we had downrange cameras on aircraft carriers and linked back through things like um, uh, Syncom and uh, – uh, Intel Sat, you know, early, early communications satellite experiments from NASA. Anyway, it was an incredibly heady time to be part of all of that and to be covering humankind leaving the cradle. Uh, in those days, I thought it was for the first time. Turns out it wasn't. Uh, but I was kind of like a missionary <laughs> because I was on this mission mm-hmm. to get people to see the big, big, big picture. And they were all looking at this as Kennedy's, you know, uh, dying stunt to outdo the Russians. I mean, the the lack of vision that I found at all different levels of a, of a network in those days was, frankly, very appalling. And so I can honestly say that because I was such a, you know, burr under the saddle blanket, uh, I made a difference. I made them do things they would never have wanted to do or thought of doing uh, without me there. So I obviously pulled my weight and i'm you know made friends i made enemies uh there was one woman producer in those days women producers were very rare Mm -hmm. and she somehow saw me as a rival which you know when you when you compound the you know equal you know rights thing with you know job security with power being a producer at a major it was it was one of those things i never resolved as to why she kind of took this instant dislike to me but um it was it was not all clear sailing let me just say that oh, it was I'm sure it wasn't it was, it was every big organization has pecking orders and yep. you know levels and countercurrents and soap opera and water cooler talk and uh, anyway it was if i learned so much mm-hmm. 
that would prepare me for what I'm now doing, which is trying to get our current civilization to realize that we are not the first, that, you know, we've trekked this pathway many, many, many years before, thousands of years, maybe millions of years. And we are kind of looking back at our extraordinary history, which for some reason, nobody seems to want to tell us about. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, prepared myself to deal in this level of you know high political and communications chicanery by my stint there at CBS News. Your stint at CBS News and after the Apollo missions to the moon, which ended, uh, I believe, in 1971 with Apollo 17, where did you go from there? How did you become interested in Mars? Well, I actually had a couple of hats in those days because remember, I was also uh, a NASA consultant. I was formerly on the payroll at NASA through the Goddard Space Flight Center during this period of time. Um, and so it was kind of a co-equal uh, thingy. Uh, I remember one meeting uh, in New York at uh, at CBS, which ultimately wound up attaching me formally to the Apollo program itself. So I can say with absolute bona fides that I had a tiny, tiny contribution to physically to our landing on the moon, not just covering it, not just, you know, advising Cronkite mm-hmm. and the network. I actually, I worked on Apollo, and I'll tell you how it happened. Um, the the head of, um, of Grumman, remember, Grumman made the lunar module, mm-hmm. and, of course, they were very embarrassed that they weren't ready for Apollo 8, and they were doing all kinds of outreach things to kind of make up for it. So I remember that uh, the head of public affairs for um, uh, Grumman was at the bureau of CBS one afternoon. And I'm trying to remember his name is Dick. Dick, what was his last name? Um, anyway, it'll, it'll come to me hopefully during the show. Um, he was there for a meeting, you know, because we were going to have to go out to Beth Page take a unit out there, set up a remote in those days when you were in the field and broadcasting back to New York, it was called a, rem- a, a remote. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, wound up getting into conversation with him and I did my usual thing. You know, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and we're leaving the cradle and all that. And he said to me, how would you like to write the lunar section of the, um, Grumman press book on the lunar module for us? Oh, and I said, what? He says, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, we need somebody who knows the moon and knows all this stuff, and we want a thorough, you know, where we're going, what the science is, what, what, the, what the dream might be. He said, you're obviously the perfect guy. And bingo, there I was, part of the Apollo program officially through Grumman on Long Island yeah. that built the spacecraft that landed Neil and Buzz on the moon. And... It was later nominated for an Aviation and Space Writers Award as Best Science Writing of 1969. Now, I didn't win because my competition, I mean, remember the Oscar thing where they say, well, it's not really winning, it's being nominated? It's real. It. Was, I was so thrilled to oh, be I'm in sure. that. Come on, I'm in my early, yeah. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'll drive behind the ears, I'm 23. And I'm in the league of all these incredible veteran journalists and science folks and all that nominated for an aviation space writers award in those days was meant you had you had joined the club and 
many, many years later, like two or three years ago, I actually found this thing online. And, you know, you, you hate reading your old stuff. Oh, you found the document online? Oh, yeah. It, oh, it, wow. it, it, it is part of a PhD thesis by a scientist at the University of Maryland who has done this incredible comprehensive history of the Apollo program. And there I am in lights for both my work with CBS and Cronkite, as well as um, they actually published in this in this uh, thesis, which is in, I guess, the University of Maryland now library and on the Internet. You can actually find it if you Google Grumman uh, Lunar Module Hoagland and think of a couple of other identifiers, you, you can find it because it's on the Grumman uh, Bethpage website, the actual company, and I actually dared to read it. This was like two or three years ago. No, I, I will find it and provide a link to it in the show notes. And it held up. It held I, up. I, I, could, I couldn't, I couldn't, because I, I literally typed it. I, I remember exactly where I was when I was writing it. Mm-hmm. And I was I borrowed my mom's uh, 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 IBM Selectric typewriter, and in those days, of course, there was no such things as digital copying, so you had to put a carbon in. Right. If you wanted to copy your manuscript, you had to put a carbon. So I remember tactily that electric Selectric typewriter, the little bouncing ball that went back and forth, back and forth, uh, radical in, in you know advance. Space Age Advance in Electric Typewriters for 1969 as we're landing on the moon. And so that was the typewriter I typed it on, and it wound up in the press book, and people read it all over the world. And it's my encapsulation of why the hell Apollo was important. Like a a lot of the folks I work with at CBS never got it, but ultimately I got to put it down in in print, Mm -hmm. and people all over the planet – We'll be reading forever, going back to the time when men went to the moon and this nobody named Hoagland wrote about for the official lunar landing spacecraft why it was important. I have a question that I I never understood. Why did the Russians just kind of stop what they were doing and not pursue going too? just because we had already gone? Well, that's a very long and complicated okay. story, and as I'm you know, sure. I like I'm, 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 I like to document controversial things. It's controversial. Um, they had put together this incredibly complicated uh, spacecraft uh, rocket combo- combination called yeah. the N1, which had you know like hundreds of rocket engines. Remember, the Saturn V had five yes. F1 engines, each one with a million and a half pounds of thrust. Well, the Russians in those days could not build big complicated rocket engines that had the thrust okay. so they had to uh gang as the term is called a bunch of smaller engines together and the problems were so insurmountable for the technology mm-hmm. of, of the era the control technology when when elon musk chose to do the same thing with his rockets um the uh, the um, super the, the the heavy falcon heavy uh-huh. and the falcon itself and now his starship with the super heavy booster, he has, you know, dozens and dozens of Merlin engines, as they're called. You mm-hmm. know, the rocket has, has a name. Um, and they all said to him, Elon, it'll never work because it'll do the same thing the Russians did. It'll blow up. 
because if the if the if the if the thrust remember rockets only work because you're burning something in a chamber. It's kind of like an internal combustion engine, except it's not internal. One end of the chamber is open and to to space to a vacuum, and that's what creates the unbalanced thrust, and that's what creates velocity. So a, a rocket engine is basically an unbounded, you know, car engine with the cylinders open to space. And if you know, everybody knows that if you have like eight or twelve cylinders, if you don't do certain things correctly, you'll get what's called engine knock. Mm-hmm. Well, in rockets, that knock develops so dramatically and has such force that it literally blows things up. So they had engine knock between all the engines on the Soviet N1 booster. Okay. And so they could never get them synchronized, so they all were, you know, purring smoothly, mm-hmm. bringing in the obligatory cat metaphor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it, it they it kept blowing up, mm. and actually one of the explosions on the pad had killed a number of people. Now, in hindsight, looking back, I have a feeling that our CIA had a hand because it wouldn't have been difficult at all to sabotage parts of the Soviet space program so that they literally could not make it there. Uh, ahead of Kennedy's deadline for the United States. Mm-hmm. Remember, we were at war with the Soviet Union, two totally opposed political systems that were doing everything they could to win the hearts and minds of the uncommitted nations, the third world, the the people looking for freedom or despotism and you know whatever system worked because their lives are so desperate. And most people on planet Earth still lead very desperate lives. So this was this was symbolic of a huge which system will perform for humanity better and we are there again right now tonight on this planet we are faced by this stark decision between freedom liberty democracy and autocracy and autocracy in the persona of china and you know the soviet union now called russia um they're making real play for the hearts and minds of the planet as to which direction politically, you know, human beings are going to go into the rest of the 21st century. So these things are not just symbolic. They literally change people's hearts and minds and cause them to have allegiances that, you know, were in, in many senses contradictory to the thoughts and perceptions they held just two days ago. So this was a real battle for the <clears throat> hearts and minds of the planet back during the, you know, Cold War. And I, I, I don't have a smidgen of evidence I can cite here, you know, this evening. But I have a feeling, given the consistency with which the Soviets had huge problems with the moon rocket, mm-hmm. and the fact that they literally gave up, uh, tells me that they, they could not solve their technical problems faster than some outside agency created them. Mm. And that's where I really think that our uh, CIA comes into into being. And uh, at some point, <clears throat> given that we now have kind of open access to a lot of the, the documentation from behind the Iron Curtain in those years, um, I'm sure we're going to find memos someday where the KGB says outright in memos that the CIA basically sabotaged the N1. Have, we're, we've come close. Uh, people like James Oberg, who was a big authority on the Soviet space program, uh, has come very close in some of his uh, writings and research and analysis. But 
there has been no outright smoking gun and maybe for political reasons given how putin thinks that you know we did him in you know decades ago when the cold war ended uh and he's always carried the chip on his shoulder maybe those documents have quietly not been published because they would kind of add fuel to a very bad fire ah oh, i see hmm. well a, a couple of things i wanted to add while i let you catch your breath um I I didn't mention that I've been listening to you on the radio since the, I would say the early to mid 1990s, when you were on Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell, that show is still on the air, but it is now hosted by George Norrie, Art Bell, he retired, and then um, he came back and he created a show uh, for himself and asked you to do a follow-up show. And that's how your current radio show, The Other Side of Midnight, was created uh, back in 2015. I actually, I was a huge fan of Art Bell and I miss him terribly, but I created this podcast uh, in 2015 to coincide with the two of you. So you two started on July 20th, 2015, and I started a month later. Um, but I also wanted to mention that you were working for CBS while in New York, while my uncle, he worked for CBS uh, in New York City for over 30 years. Uh, you guys were there at the same time. And then, oh my gosh. Yeah. And then my, this is what, did, the, what did, what did he do? He was an editor. Oh, down in a, uh, Telesini, as they used to call it. He worked in film. He was a film editor. Yeah. Yeah, and then my grandmother's, this is going to sound convoluted, but my grandmother's cousin, who she was very close to and like a sister, her husband. I must, I, sorry, Laura, I, okay. must have, I must have met him. I asked I was, him. I was in and out, out of Telesini because in those days you had these huge, they, they like took up a room, Ampex video tape recorders. Mm. But the only way you could get film, which was shot because we didn't have, ENG in those days, electronic news gathering. Uh-huh. You know, everything was shot on 16 millimeter film yeah. and then rushed to a lab to be developed and then given to a courier, put on a 707 and sent back to New York, you know, by air. And then a courier picked it up at, at, uh, at Idlewild, later mm. turned into JFK, raced into New York on a motorcycle. Uh, delivered it to the bureau. It was it was looked at, reviewed, put into the Cronkite Evening News, and so it was a very elaborate. <clears throat> no satellites, no electronics, whatever. It was all film. Yeah. How did you get the film on the air? Well, you literally set up a projector in this set of rooms called Telecine, Tele like in television, mm -hmm. Cine cinematic film, mm -hmm. and you would aim the projector at a TV camera mounted on a bench. So it was projecting literally not onto a screen, but onto the faceplate of the, of the TV tube, of the sensitive part of the camera, uh, you know, end to end. <clears throat> and it literally, sorry. That's okay, go ahead. Yeah, wow. It, 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 it literally was, changed. it was either broadcast live that way, which mm -hmm. was dangerous because, you know, the film could break, right? Or it was recorded onto videotape, big two-inch Ampex reels 
that literally whirred and, you know, you had to almost wear headphones. The sounds were so loud and the, the fans to keep them cool because everything was vacuum tubes in those days. No integrated circuits, no transistors. So the heat in the Telesini rooms yeah. was were very it was it was it was not trivial and of course air conditioning was was you know in use but <clears throat> it was it was a very different atmosphere and i would obviously since so i was looking at you know film and video and whatever for for the lunar stuff i would go to telesini a lot i must have met your uncle i must have i'm sure yeah i'm sure you did and then i remember when i was cuz i was living in new jersey i grew up in new jersey and he was living in New Jersey after a while um, when he had a family and he would take the bus into work every day. But uh, I remember, I don't know what year it was, hearing that this is when there was the big change, right? When everything went digital um, and that his department went from 45 staff to two. Yeah. And he made the cut. So he was wow. one of the two. And then they didn't, it came, there came a point where he didn't have much to do. So I remember him saying that they would just kind of sit around all day. And at that point, there was just very little to do. So I don't know much more about it than that. But my other connection with you is that my grandmother, who was very close to her cousin, um, who was like a sister, her husband, they lived on Long Island. Her husband worked for Grumman. Oh, at Death Page. Yeah. So those are my two connections. And then I mentioned wow. that I have been listening to you on the radio since the 90s. And um, and actually, so I mentioned your current show, but we'll get into that later. And uh, I've filled in for you a couple times, and I've been a guest on your program. So I just want to say now uh, to everybody, it airs live every Saturday and Sunday night. Uh, you can listen online at the other side of midnight.com. It is from midnight to 3 a.m. Eastern, which is 9 p.m. Pacific till midnight. And you have fascinating guests. You, I like actually the most when you talk and you tell your stories and you cover <laughs> what, yeah, that's my favorite. And you cover what is going on currently in the news uh, as far as space. But I'd like to back up and well, we also cover a lot more, you know, oh, I last several programs, you know, maybe going back to February, we've been focusing on Mars because of NASA landing the second rover, the big Perseverance rover. And the fact that in June, we're in June now, there's supposed to be this huge release from the Senate Intelligence Committee of the so-called UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Report, yes. better known to all of us as UFOs. The U.S. government is taking, <clears throat> finally, it's terribly seriously. There's po political folks involved. There's major media. It's a watershed. So we've been focusing our weekends kind of on the confluence of these two parallel explorations of what's out there, the E.T. paradox, the extraterrestrial mysteries, the things we're never supposed to know. And we're, we're in the middle of this uh, shift huge political uh, civilization shift and I have no idea where it's going to come down but it's I don't think we're we're in the Lucy in the football situation I think this is this time it's for real so mm -hmm. <clears throat> the last several weeks we've been focusing more on space but I'm I have a lot of interest I'm 
you know, I probably say I'm a, I'm a, a generalist. So, you know, I've had people from the arts. I've had people from Hollywood. I've had people, <clears throat> you know, looking at, uh, at weird political systems. I've had uh, arcane experts on, on uh, you know, out-of-body experiences. I've, you know, uh, I hate the term paranormal. Yeah. Because given the, the work on the physics, the hyperdimensional uh, physics model that I've been working on for like 20, 30 years, nothing is abnormal if it, if it, if it can be documented that it takes place. What, what happens is that, that the CIA, our friends again at the CIA, okay. they, they created an entire category of fake news uh, decades ago, the National Enquirer. And they literally, out of Lantana, Florida, ran a whole bunch of these uh, uh, Inquirer clones that would have, you know, like fake photographs on the on the front page of Clinton standing, you know, with an alien at the podium in the uh, White House briefing room. Right. And you could see it was an obvious fake picture, mm-hmm. but people, millions of people would buy this at the supermarket counter every week to catch up on the soap operas of of, uh, you know, the Cardassians, I'm flipping back and forth in time, um, you know, what was going on politically, uh, the, 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 the three-headed baby that was born in Borneo, I mean, and, and the CIA created, <clears throat> which then morphed, of course, into Fox News, this whole cadre of fake, fake nonsense so people can't figure out what the hell is really going on. And it laid the groundwork now for this extraordinarily pernicious and ultimately deadly bifurcation of society yeah. where we have almost equal halves of the culture. One half cannot talk to the other half mm-hmm. because even if they're using the same language, they're not speaking to each other. They're not connecting. They're not resonating. They do not see reality the same reality as reality. Right. And of course, that's the death of everything unless we can correct this. And to me, it's it's really at the level of biblical. Because yeah. remember, there is this chapter in Genesis where God confuses their language, you know, the whole Tower of Babel thing and all that, and they all go back to being separate nations. Well, it's the old divide and conquer who is trying to divide us on the eve of reconnecting with who we really are? And that's so many hours of programming. We don't begin to have time in the next hour or so to get into more than just the the high points. But that's what the other side of midnight is trying to do, is to document as much reality, as much testable science, as much predictive political analysis about this transition as we can bring to bear with all kinds of very amazing guests, including uh, I'm working very hard now to get Danny Sheehan, who is the uh, attorney with the Christic Institute, um, who has been working in these vineyards for decades. He he legally represents Stephen Greer, who's a major name in the UFO uh, disclosure world, as well as the the new kid on the block, uh, Louis Elizondo, who is the kind of designated hitter from the Pentagon, uh, uh, starting with this uh, front-page story in December of 2017 when the New York Times broke the Nimitz 
you know, incidents, the fact that uh, U.S. Navy pilots had chased and monitored and photographed with high technology for, you know, um, the early parts of this uh, century, obvious aircraft maneuvering at completely non-normal, non-rocket, non-jet speeds and acrobatics, uh, plunging from 80,000 feet down to the deck of the ocean in a second, and, you know, and no one could survive the G-forces, let alone have a power plant that can do that. And these things do not have wings. They don't have aerolons. They don't have elevators. They don't have anything sticking out. They're obviously, you know, controlling gravity. Well, who on this planet do we know that can do that? And that opens up such a can of worms. So that's what I'm devoting the other side of midnight in the coming days and weeks to, because December to June, June now is the is the month. Toward the end of June, we're now told when the Senate report on all of this bizarre aerial activity around the various uh, uh, aircraft carrier fleets that the U.S. has all around the world, two fleets in particular, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, is all going to come to a political head in Washington with this official report. And you can see the trend curves in all of the mainstream uh, coverage, including major journalists who have, you know, made their names and abuse to say in the trade, you know, made their bones covering the trenches, you know, story after story after story for over years and sometimes even decades. They're all now turning to writing about UFOs. It's, it's bizarre. Ashley Parker, who is the Washington bureau chief for the, for the Washington post at the white house. She wrote an amazing overview piece on uh, UFOs the Washington Post just the other day, and one of my colleagues and friends and someone who's been involved in this disclosure movement for decades, uh, Stephen Bassett, mm-hmm. um, he's featured at the end of the piece written by Ashley Parker, who was a national name in terms of the politics of the White House. So the UFO so-called paranormal community has now completely smashed into the squeaky clean mainstream, you've got to be kidding, we're calling all this stuff paranormal, uh, mainstream journalists, and I have no idea where it's going to come out, but it's not going to be trivial, and I think it's going to change, and I think in a positive way, if we do this correctly, the future fate and course of civilization. Nothing more, nothing less. It's kind of like when I first walked into CBS at 20 something and said hi i'm here to help you go to the moon yeah yeah i got that email uh just before we started recording from stephen bassett about uh being included in uh parker's story and i just want to back up a little bit you mentioned daniel sheehan uh i had ralph blumenthal on this show uh last week and he was on to talk about his new biography of Dr. John Mack. And when Dr. Mack was being questioned by Harvard University, uh, he hired Daniel Sheehan uh, as legal representation. Oh, that's right. I forgot that. Okay. Yeah. So we discussed that a little bit. And um, Ralph Blumenthal was the co-author of that article that you just mentioned, the now famous December 2017 story in the New York Times uh, 
talking about this, these sightings that these Navy pilots are having, uh, while they're flying off their, their aircraft carrier. And you were describing, Richard, uh, the movement of these unidentified aerial phenomena that are, that we're all talking about. And I'd like to ask you what you think it is. Well, this is part of a, a rising controversy within the so-called UFO community mm-hmm. because it, it's kind of like that line that I used in the Monuments of Mars when I was writing about artifacts on, on the planet, including a big one that looked like us, did not belong there, a human face on Mars. Are you mm-hmm. kidding? Right. You know, the only outrageous writer who ever conceived of something like this was Ray Bradbury. Remember the end line in uh, uh, the Martian Chronicles where – where he is the the um, kind of hero of the of, of the book has has taken his kids and they're surviving on Mars after a nuclear war on the Earth, and he <clears throat> points them to the waters of a canal. Back when Radbury was writing this, you know, Mars canals were still in vogue, mm-hmm. and he has them look at their reflections in the waters of the canal, and they said things like, "Daddy, where are the Martians?" Because in Bradbury's tales, there were old Martians still hanging around. Uh-huh. And he points them down to the water and he says, there, they are the Martians. And of course, the kids were looking at their own reflections. Yeah. So it was Bradbury's ama- – I mean, it turns out Bradbury was true. The Martians are us. And that's a very long, complicated story, which is not going to work itself out for years and years and years. Uh, but the entry point is, is there an extraterrestrial reality? Are there really folks out there? Are they really flying in extraordinary spaceships? And who are they? Are they aliens? <clears throat> are they the bug-eyed monsters of the 1950s, you know, uh, grade B movies? Or are they something even more extraordinary, uh, which would be relatives? Are they cousins? Do we have a human family in the galaxy, not just here on planet Earth? What's our relationship to the family, et cetera, et cetera? So when you ask me who are flying these incredible, obviously anti-gravity spacecraft, mm-hmm. there's only three possibilities. Okay. Just three. The first is we're looking at a secret, high-level, ultra-deep state set of research and development craft uh, of the so-called secret space program. And there's a lot of effort and documentation in that direction that the U.S. government is, in fact, working on this kind of stuff and has been since the 1920s. There's the work of Admiral T. Townsend Brown. There's a book, a brilliant book covering all of this by my friend, Dr. Paul LaViolet, who's been on the show many times. Uh, it's, I think it's called the Anti-Gravity Handbook. Uh, just uh, Google, you know, Anti-Gravity and Paul LaViolet. L a b i o l e t t e, and you'll it'll, you'll come up, and it's it's the book to buy, in terms of the documented with memos and leaked documents of the secret U.S. efforts to control, from the 1920s onward, uh, gravity, and to create real anti-gravity spacecraft. So I know technologically that if there was enough money, and of course the government has all the money it wants, right? If it doesn't, it just prints more. (laughs) So if you have the money and the time and the engineers and the proper physics, Mm -hmm. we humans could create what the Nimitz pilots reported seeing. The question, of course, then becomes not technical but political. 
would a top secret burn before reading uh, component of the black opera ops, you know, deep state program, R&D program, would it be parading what it's been doing in plain sight to the entire, you know, fleet mm-hmm. with all the radar and all the observers and all the pilots and, you know, gun camera footage and all this flare and whatever, would it be parading a top secret burn before reading program to where everybody could report it in the New York Times? But are, are those classified missions that they're flying? Which, who's are we talking about? The David Fravor, Na- let's say. You you mean the Navy pilots? Yeah. No, no, okay. those are just ordinary routine maneuvers. Okay. You know the, the 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 military services. Thank goodness, practice all the time. Practice, practice, practice. Because yeah. what happens when you practice enough times, when the real you know what hits the rotating kitchen appliance, you don't think, you respond. It's an automatic reflex. Yeah. And that will save your life. So they want to get their pilots and their soldiers and their, you know, fleet admirals and everybody involved in the Defense Department to the point where when shit happens, I guess we can say that we're on cable. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, you do not think you just respond. So they're drilling constantly. So these are just overflight drills with the fleet, you know, takeoffs and landings, uh, pinpoint exercises, navigation in the midst of everything failing around you. You know, every conceivable scenario is, 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 you know, gamed out. So these guys and gals, because they're women pilots as well. In fact, one of them appeared on 60 Minutes the other night. They were doing the normal drill with the fleet um, off, uh, I think it was the Nimitz off San Diego. Mm-hmm. And that's when this, this modern iteration, this has been happening much longer than the New York Times initial story in 2017 laid it right. out. But it, it, it's been happening regularly, and no one's talked about it because uh, not only are they all told not to talk about it, but all the radar data, all the tapes, all the records of the plunge from 80,000 feet to the ocean deck in seconds, mm-hmm. that's been taken away. That's been absconded with. So when people have tried to outside in the UFO community you know, go in with FOIA, there's nothing to find because it's all been erased, wiped buried under 15 layers of bureaucracy. So the the, the, the the turning point was something that could outmaneuver an F-18, outshoot it, outgun it, outaccelerate it, you know, that could make turns that would smear human pilots into thin films on the inside of the cockpit because of the G-forces, that was performing right in front of them like it was showing off. Mm-hmm. So let's set aside, this is a big controversy now, let's set aside, is it our stuff? Because for a whole bunch of reasons, no, it's not our stuff. For one thing, why would we be parading our stuff that's top, 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 top secret? I mean, the control of gravity is the control of everything. Why would we be laying that out there for un, un, you know, un, what's the word I'm looking for? Unsanctioned eyes to see and witness. Mm-hmm. In, when we have, you know, millions of square miles of airspace, both on and off the planet, to test and perform and to check out this kind of technology where no one would ever know what was going on. It just doesn't make sense if you have a top, top secret program that you then parade it so everybody gets to notice it and see it and it winds up on the front page of the New York Times. Makes no sense. 
So let's set that aside. It's not our stuff. So whose stuff else could it be? Well, the next layer is could it be, you know, nations? Could it be Russia? Could it be China? Could it be Iran? Could it be some secret cabal of nations that have, you know, glommed together the technology to put together spacecraft that can perform all these maneuvers and have nothing better to do than to basically flaunt their stuff in front of the Sixth Fleet, in front of thousands of eyes and radars and all this, when they're trying to develop it in secret. Again, that makes no sense. If this was developed technology by Russia or China, let's just limit it to those two major planetary antagonists on Earth at the moment – against Western democracies, against, you know, what we stand for, we would be speaking Russian or Chinese because this technology allows them to defeat us without firing a shot. It literally is that far ahead of any conventional rocket engines, jet engines, explosives, airfoils, you know, Sidewinder missiles, uh, Vulcan cannons, whatever. It it can run rings around anything we can put put in the air. And that's how you win battles. Now, why would someone be doing this? Well, if it was another nation that had developed this program, given that there seem to be a few of these, they're not millions or thousands, there's dozens of these craft that perform these maneuvers, sometimes only two or three. And I remember in some of the reports that uh, some of these pilots had really close encounters where the the maneuvering spacecraft or aircraft, whatever it was, mm-hmm. they're, 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 they're called Tic Tacs because they resemble the little, you know, smooth white pellet of the of the candy mm-hmm. that, you know, was released by the little dispensary used to, you know, buy at the drugstore. These things are so maneuverable that some of them came within feet of the F-18s at hundreds of miles an hour, you know scaring the pilots to death because they had no control. Well, do you consider it, that these are unmanned? Doesn't matter. Okay. If they're if they're, if they're a technology maneuvered by uh, an, another nation state on earth, mm-hmm. then they're demonstrating a capability manned or unmanned, drone or 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 personed okay. that can so outstrip what we can do. That in any dogfights, in any real con- confrontation, you know, we have no defense, zero defense. How do you defend against something which can go from 80,000 feet to the ocean deck in one second? You know, 80,000 feet, 5,280 feet per mile. Divide, you know, 5,280 into 80,000 and you wind up with moving tens of miles in a second. The accelerations, the velocities, the energy, the ability to to stop on a dime, to not squish anything, you know, all over the cabin. There's no way in a war you could you could confront that with an F-18. So someone is parading their abilities as a demonstration of power, as a demonstration of look what we can do, sucker. You can't touch us. Is that another nation state? Well, unless they have battle fleets developed for deployment, 
if we really had intelligence that it could be traceable to Russia or China, then we have nuclear weapons and we would have to do something as a first strike because otherwise they will take over the planet. There's nothing that could stop them, that could stand against them because the way you do this, the way you control gravity in the hyperdimensional physics model, Mm -hmm. it gives you the control of everything else. It gives you control of time. It gives you control of beam weapons. It gives you control of force shields. It, 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 it's, it's literally a Star Trek technology up to and including maybe even transporter technology, which means there would there'd be nothing we could do, nothing with 21st century clunky, you know, jets and rockets and sidewinder missiles. Come on. Right, right. So it's someone playing force games. And I don't think because of the process of elimination, it's um, Russia or China. That leaves a final possibility that it's extraterrestrial. Now, like the old good news, bad news with the haystack story, you've heard that one, right? No. Oh, okay. A, a paratrooper. This is going to be a diversion book. Paratrooper jumping out of an airplane, okay? Fortunately, he's wearing a parachute. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, he's wearing a backup parachute. Unfortunately, it doesn't work either. He's over a hayfield. You know, fortunately, he sees that he's coming down at a very high speed into a field where they just pile up all the hay to be be baled and whatever. Mm -hmm. And he sees that he can possibly land on one of the haystacks. Unfortunately, he doesn't land on the haystack. You know, it's just plus, minus, plus, minus, plus. Well, the good news is the technology exists. The bad news is it's not in our hands. The good news is no one's done anything uh, really catastrophic. You know, nobody's been killed. Nobody's been shot down. These have all been kind of like during the Cold War. Remember, we used to have what were called the Boomer Wars. You know about those, right? No. The boomer during the height wars. of the Cold War, us and the Soviet Union used to play chicken under the ocean with submarines. Oh. Our big submarines are called boomers, the ones that carry the missiles that could mm-hmm. obliterate Moscow and Stalingrad and whatever. Mm-hmm. And the Russians had killer attack submarines, and they would, you know, The Hunt for Red October is a wonderful movie for showing how those killer hunter games used to take place. They would come within feet of each other, you know, a thousand feet down in the dark using only sonar. And it was intimidation. It was basically my stuff is bigger than your stuff. And I'm replacing, you know, the word stuff with other things. So to me – what the Nimitz and the Roosevelt and the other pilots are reporting looks like somebody showing off their stuff and basically saying, you can't hold a candle to what we can do if we ever got serious. So then the question is, who would have that attitude? All right. If it's not a secret U.S. top deep state research effort, which makes zero sense. If it's not Russian or Chinese, you know, pilots <clears throat> using this technology showing off, and of course, if they did, they'd be clobbered when they get back to Beijing or Moscow, because you don't do secret stuff in public. So that leaves us the ET scenario. But like the haystack, you know, story, we've got two sets of possibilities: either they're ET aliens, you know, little 
green-eyed, bug-eyed monsters from Alpha Centauri that are here looking over the planet to invade. Okay. Being kind of quasi-not serious. Or they're not, they're not aliens, but they're part of this extended human family I keep talking about that only look different because they live in a different planet or star system. But in fact, with this technology, they can come and go into the Earth's sphere at any time, at any moment they want to. And one of those groups is showing off, is demonstrating they've got more kahunes than the U.S. Navy because it's a show of force and it's part of a bigger geopolitical plan. And that brings us to my favorite model, which I'm going to talk extensively about on Saturday and Sunday with Steve and with Joe Bookman, and then on Sunday with Richard Grossinger, who was my original publisher on the Monuments of Mars, that we're looking at what we call the breakaways. The terrestrial humans, the Nazis, post-World War II, a la Richard Dolan's model, that took the top secret anti-gravity, anti-oil, you know, uh, ultimate free energy technologies that do all these magical Star Trek thingies, and they took it off the planet, and they've been developing a separate breakaway human Nazi civilization off-planet somewhere in the solar system for these past 75, 76 years since the end of World War II. And they are now coming back wanting to occupy and conquer Earth. And their initial foray was to demonstrate for the U.S. Navy that we got nothing that can touch them if they really want to take over. That this technology was developed off-planet, and you said by humans. No, it was developed on-planet. If you look at the end of World War II, General Calmer, and you look at the works of, of uh, colleagues of mine like uh, Dr. Joseph Farrell, who's mm-hmm. documented this with the help of some sources behind the former Iron Curtain. When the Iron Curtain fell in late 89, you know, uh, 89, 90s, whatever – a whole bunch of top-secret memos and documents, part of the Behind the Iron Curtain's communist treasure trove of documentation, came to light, became open source, became public. And there are researchers. There's one in Poland whose name escapes me, uh, who's, who uh, Joseph has been working with very closely. Um, and you find all kinds of incredible uh, evidence that the Nazis literally had cracked the secret of, of, of anti-gravity, separate from the U.S. Navy work with uh, uh, T. Townsend Brown. And at the end of the war, uh, a guy named Kamler, General Kamler, took this deep state black ops research division out of um, eastern uh, Czechoslovakia, I think, is where they were based under a certain set of mountains there, and took them off planet took the developing fledgling spacecraft and literally either went by way of the Antarctic bases to the moon or went to Mars or wherever they could basically create a new environment. And given the fact that we know there are ruins all over the solar system, that's our own work on ET archaeology, they didn't have to take and build stuff. They simply moved in, turned on the lights, and occupied what was already there. Okay. Okay. And they've had... 
you know, 75, 80 years now to develop separately. So I'm looking at all these events reported in that first story in the New York Times, and I'm saying of all the likely gin joints in all the world, you know, the Casablanca thing, which category of antagonists would be demonstrating, and we did another 19.5, would be demonstrating um, their super technological superiority over anything being fielded by the current governments of planet Earth, it would be the breakaways who basically want to move in and take over Earth like they tried, the Nazis tried in World War II. Hitler tried a major, major gain for that philosophy, and he all he came very close to winning. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the world, remember, the Japanese were also developing their A-bomb technology. We just beat them to it. And we've forced them into a standstill together with the Russians joining the war in in the last few days. So history has turned on very unusual events uh, in the past. There's no reason why those events, you know, won't continue to be unusual in the future. And I think that what we're seeing with the UAP, um, shall we say, antagonism fits in the model of adversaries that are showing off their stuff. You know, two kids in the schoolyard, uh, one bully and the other guy trying to defend, you know, let's say a friend. And the bully is basically demonstrating that he's going to wipe the floor with the other kid if the other kid doesn't give in. Now, I'm sure that some of our listeners are going to think that this sounds extraordinary. And it does. All I do is point you to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox News, Tucker Carlson, um, uh, who else? Uh, um, uh, Barack Obama, who came out just two days ago. I mean, we're, we're looking at the political landscape from far left to far right. All are agreed. We now need to know what's going on because in the words of <clears throat> Senator Mark Rubio, who's the one who is, was chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee when this report was commissioned, um, there's something invading our airspace that we can't control. We need to find out what it is because <clears throat> it could be a threat. It could be a threat. I think that what the listeners might find extraordinary is this theory of the breakaway civilization because that is not a generally known um, theory. It's it's highly unusual. And because I've been listening to you and listening to the other side of midnight, and I'm familiar with Joseph Farrell's work and Richard Dolan's work. And for listeners, I will have everybody's name and websites in the show notes for this episode. So I guess I'm wondering where all of this fits in with your research. When did you first consider this? When did you first hear about this? And is it because it kind of fits into what you already know about what's happened on Mars and the moon, which we haven't really gotten to yet? No, this is just, you know, the kind of backstory. Right. (laughs) We may have to do another one of these. Yes, I think so. (laughs) Well, what what happened, what, what I read in the intro was that you were part of the coverage of the Mariner 4 flyby of the planet Mars, which was back in 1965. Right. Is that when that all started for no, you? No, no, because no, 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 no
dumb and naive then as everybody else. Okay. I just thought, you know, it was based on, you know, anticipation anticipation of Mars. Was it a Lowellian Mars? Were there canals? Was there vegetation? Right. Had there been an ancient civilization? We were so naive back then. So the 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 Mariner Four, excuse me, flyby of '65 was an opening for everybody into the real Mars. And of course, the huge disappointment was the scientific results from Mariner 4 said, you know, there were no thoats, there were no green Martians, there were no canals. It was a rocky, cratered place, looked like a, dead as a doornail, dead as the moon, and the atmosphere was one one-hundredth of the atmosphere that we're breathing right now, uh, equivalent to, you know, being found over the Earth at about 100,000 feet. So all of the dreams of, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs and Martian civilizations and the glittering crystal cities of Barsoom, all of that died with the data that came back in those hours in July of 1965 when Mariner 4 flew by Mars 6,000 miles away, took 22 uh, photographs, and reported on the atmosphere uh, that it was, there was, you know, quoting Elton John, Mars was not the kind of place to raise your kids. Right, right. Let's cut to 1976 and the Viking photos. Oh, yeah. Gosh, that was an amazing morning. Um, We had decided as a nation to, in 1976, the bicentennial year, remember the bicentennial? Remember the fleets? Remember all that wonderful celebratory, you know, of this amazing experiment, which is still ongoing. We don't Mm -hmm. know how the ending is going to be written, but we can write the ending if we do it right. Anyway... 1976, as part of the huge bicentennial um, celebration, we reached out as a culture and we sent two unmanned spacecraft, Viking 1 and Viking 2, to Mars. Actually, it was two fleets because each Viking, as an orbiter, as a mothership, carried a lander. So there were really four spacecraft. So you had two orbiters circling Mars, looking down, taking pictures and other data. And then you landed two spacecraft uh, Viking 1 and Viking 2, thousands of miles apart on different parts of Mars to survey for the first time conditions on the surface. Uh, these were nuclear-powered spacecraft, so they lasted a very, very, very long time with their own internal nuclear power source. And they landed thousands of miles apart, and they took pictures, obviously, on landing. And the pictures looked so achingly familiar I mean, I remember standing at the crack of dawn in the, in the lobby at JPL with a whole bunch of other news people, including uh, Carl Sagan. And we're watching on the big monitors that were hung all over JPL in the cafeteria, in the offices, in the corridors, in the auditorium. You had these big, huge Conrack monitors, you know, these monsters that if they fell on you, it would kill you. And they had them suspended on trunnions from the ceiling so they could be tilted and rotated so wherever you were in the office or in the news area or whatever, you could see what was going on all over the lab, including data coming back from the Viking missions to Mars. So in the early dawn of that morning, like 5 or 6 a.m., the spacecraft uh, on the 20th of July of 1976, Viking 1 had set down on the plains of Chrysi, the Chrysi Plains, as, as it's known in uh, Latin. And a few minutes later, we'd gotten our first black and white images, uh, first of the footpad, 
and then of the landscape as the camera literally line by line because it was like an old-fashioned fax machine where the image came in not all at once but literally line by line by line Mm -hmm. and the picture built up and it built up and it built up and we saw this black and white craggy desert stark lighting hint of some clouds dark sky bright sky toward the sun crisp lander details rocks foot i mean every and it was all black and white and it's wiping on the big screen which is the center screen at jpl in the uh, von Karman auditorium and we're like there's 15 to 2000 people in the auditorium most of them news people from all the american newspapers and networks and from all over the world BBC, the Japanese, the Koreans, the South Americans, the Mexicans, everybody was there. You know, I used to say that every two years when we went someplace, JPO would throw a kind of a Woodstock and everybody would come. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was such an amazing space party because yeah. you'd see people that you hadn't seen in years mm-hmm. and you caught up on their lives and what they were doing and you had this mission behind the scenes to kind of – you know, be the glue that's strung day by day by day together, and you're seeing new things, and you're seeing new amazing images. I mean, it was a heady time to be part of the NASA program. So there we are, <clears throat> all of us gathered in the Von Karman Auditorium on that early, early morning of July 20th, 1976, and I'm sitting literally between on my left <clears throat> is Gene Roddenberry, you know, my old friend and creator of Star Trek, and on my right is Eric Burgess, who was uh, Arthur C. Clarke's old friend and uh, co-founder with him of the British Interplanetary Society and um, a whole bunch of other people that I knew that were, you know, for the New York Times. Uh, Walter Sullivan was there. He was a science writer for the New York Times. There was um, there were folks from other networks. There was Jules Bergman bustling around. There was, um, oh, oh, what's his name? Um, uh, Hugh Downs from NBC. It was kind of like the long-form, deep um, coverage guy for NBC. He used to host uh, the Today Show, and they would give him these think pieces where he would do like an hour special on on science and arcana of research and whatever. So he was – I mean everybody who was anybody on television and in the media those days was there because we were, we were landing on Mars at the crack of dawn for the first time. And it was really amazing because later on, when Carl Sagan died, and uh, remember there used to be a show, I think, on A&E called Biography? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Remember? Okay. Well, the I'm flipping back and forth. Many years later, when Carl Sagan died prematurely of uh, an amazing runaway cancer that, frankly, I'm very suspicious of. Uh, biography, like all the networks, like I participated in some when I was at CBS – we would do biography pieces. We called them bank pieces that would basically be a thumbnail biography of these famous people. So if they died, you know, you didn't have to create a show from scratch. Okay. You simply put the tape on and ran the tape and there was a, their biography of their accomplishments, their loves and lives and the things they'd done and why they were famous or infamous or whatever. So all networks used to do that. They still do that. And they're called bank pieces. Anyway, so Biography had done this on Sagan, and they ran the night he died, um, his biography. 
And I remember I was in New York. Uh, my girlfriend was in the other room, and she came running in, and she said, you're on television. You're on television. I said, what? So I flipped on the TV, and I think it was in the living room, and tuned to the same channel, and it was biography running, the biography of Carl Sagan, and there I was, a part of Carl Sagan's biography. And the film they had included, obviously, specifically by his command, his desire, because Carl was a very, very controlling person, Mm -hmm. and he would not have shot this and let them produce it without him monitoring every single frame. Uh Well, he was like that, okay? Yeah. That's how, he, that's how he created the amazing enfant tarive image of Carl Sagan, you know, genius E.T. scientist, that kind of thing. There I am, and it's the photography, it's the film footage shot with me sitting in the front row at JPL, oh. the morning of Viking, with Roddenberry on my left and uh, Eric Burgess on my right. And there I am in that horrible leisure suit holding a stupid handheld little tape recorder with this stupid grin on my face, an awful long – I mean, I look horrible. You know, the 70s oh. were not good sartorially. <laughs> we really dressed very, very badly. Gene was also wearing a leisure suit. You know, if you ever have a leisure suit, go and burn it, please, please. Anyway, so there I am in the middle of, of Sagan's biography at the moment we land on Mars. Oh, I didn't know this. And it's part of his secret, you know, Emily Dickinson between the lines. No, Hoagland's not crazy. There was a secret civilization on Mars that I, Carl Sagan, couldn't tell you about when I was alive. You know, it was so Emily Dickinson because it was it was part of the Mars segment. And why would they put why would he put me in there? What's my claim to fame in terms of Mars? There's only one thing. I'm yeah. the guy who thinks and has documented the existence of a former set up amazing civilizations on the planet starting in 19 let's see when did i first do my first public thing on this it was in the 1980s mm-hmm. yep 83 somewhere around there well you yeah, were I on think, larry king in 1983 weren't you i think it was later i think that was in the 90s i i think yeah it was in the 1990s that was the night i got the angstrom medal we went directly from the ceremony in Washington over to the studio, and I spent a very agonizing half hour trying to get Larry King to believe any of this stuff. And he only began to believe it when I presented documents, papers, and he started looking at them and reading them. And it was toward the end of the segment. I think I had half an hour. And he, he, he totally turned around. You know, he went from being incredibly skeptical to where he saw that NASA had actually been covering this stuff up. And I had documentation of the NASA cover-up of the Monuments of Mars, and I was able to present it to the worldwide audience on Larry King. And it was, I think, sometime in the summer of 92, I think. You know what? You're right. This was in the 90s. I just opened it up, and if you could hear that, it was me clicking. It is on YouTube. Again, I will have a link to the segment. Yes, I will have a link to it in the show notes. It aired on August 25th of 1993. Your entire uh-huh. segment is here on YouTube. Wow. Uh, yep. So See, you have to all be very, very careful because things you have done decades past are g- wind up on YouTube. Thank That's God. Right. I don't think I've done anything that was documented that I wouldn't be um, at least could say, yeah, that's me. I don't think. There could be surprises out there. That's so. right. That's right. You never know. So – 
uh, I want the audience to know that this, these Viking, these photos from the Viking mission to Mars, um, but I, I don't want this to slip through the cracks. You mentioned July 20th. So we landed on the moon on July 20th and we landed well, on Mars on July 20th. Gosh, isn't that special? And you started <laughs> the other side of midnight on July 20th. I, I just have to add that. Well, Art and I did that deliberately. Yeah, I knew that you did. Because, you know, and in fact, see, I didn't start out doing that when, when we're, we're jumping around, folks. So I you're going to have to play this a couple times, okay? Uh, many, many years later, when um, I got kicked off of um, uh, Coast by George through very bizarre reasons. I still to this day don't know why George turned from being my friend. And he demonstrably was both my friend and Robin's friend, very, very good friends. And he turned around and he just kicked me off coast. And I think, frankly, it was a conspiracy. I think it was designed to get give me, uh, cut me away from my national platform, which was Coast to Coast AM. And I was, because we were getting to the, to the end time where things were going to be meaningful and if there are enemies out there, which I do have enemies, remember they tried to kill me back in the uh, 1998, 1999. Yeah. They tried to give me a heart attack and, you know, Robin saved my life. Um, if they really wanted to get rid of me because I would be an annoyance when the end game came around, getting rid of me on a national platform like Coast to Coast, which had 600 and some affiliates through Premier. And when I would, you know, talk on, on Art's show and then on George's show, I knew from sources that literally in certain NASA centers, they would turn on Art's program and run my interview, my hours and hours on Art Bell live in the NASA space centers so everybody at NASA could hear me talking about what they were covering up. Wow. So at the end point of this, which was in the uh, you know, uh, 2015, 14 timeframe, when we thought things were going to be really getting serious mm -hmm. like they, the, the the whole big discovery transition thing was supposed to take place i believe now based on some analysis both of my own and by bassett that when hillary was elected president that's when this was all supposed to hit the fan and someone in that time frame wanted to get rid of me did not want me to be a national voice so what's the quickest way to get rid of someone that you don't want to be a voice you cut off their voice. You make it impossible for them to get airtime, to get national exposure. I mean, I used to be on CNN. I used to be on Fox. I used to do all those things. Yep. Suddenly, it all dried up as if someone wanted to basically make me go away. And the, the most solid national connection I had, which was really international, and I have some stories of being overseas with London, with London, with uh, with with uh, Robin, and we would literally be recognized in in amazing alien countries because I'd been on coast with Art. Mm. How people recognized you by your voice when you're not on television, but they specifically said, "Oh, I listen to listen to you all the time." I mean, Robin and I had several experiences like that in the Netherlands, in London, and. I mean, so we had a literal world reach with that platform, yeah. and someone wanted to take it away because Hillary was supposed to be elected president, and the disclosure that we're seeing now was supposed to take place years ago, five years ago, and it got cut short because the guy named Trump, the former guy, got elected instead of Hillary and sent shockwaves through all of the careful disclosure plans that Podesta 
and others had created. And when you when you listen to my show on on Saturday nights, uh, we'll be reiterating some of this with Bassett because I'm I now think his model was correct because it was in the same time frame that she was beginning to make kind of public rumblings about ufology and ETs and all that, mm-hmm. that they, they, they stabbed me in the back, got rid of me on coast. And then art said, would you like to do a show on my network, which was dark matter. And he was launching in his 50 millionth comeback, the, right. you know, midnight in the desert. Yeah. So he said, what would I'd like to do? He said, I'd like to come on. And then I'll introduce you, and you will have a show after me. And he said, you've got some think. Oh, I spent like a month. Robin and I spent, because Robin hated art. Robin was not happy with how art treated me in years past. And that's just, you know, uh, Robin liked some people. She didn't like other people. Uh, I always found that when push came to shove, art was there. Mm-hmm. And in this case, he proved he was there because he offered me a platform Again, under the coattails of his name. Remember, back then, Art Bell was a huge name. Even if he hadn't been on radio for a couple, three years, he was on Sirius Satellite. Uh, he was talking with NBC, with ABC affiliates in, in Los Angeles. He was going to do this thing on the web, the you know Midnight in the Desert. Um, Crystal Gale's famous song that she wrote for him. Have you ever heard her song? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful song. The theme song for that show. And he co-wrote a book with Whitley Strieber, The Coming Global Superstorm. And years before, he had written a book called The Quickening. Yeah, Robin and I attended the premiere in New York of The Coming Global Superstorm with Art and uh, Ramona. uh, Oh, cool. uh, So, you know, we had had a lot of interesting adventures together, the the four of us, while Ramona was still alive and, of course, while... Well, Robin was. So um, he offered me this birth. Looking back now, I'm wondering if it all was just coincidence. Remember FDR? He said in politics, there's no such thing as coincidence. Yeah. It's like when someone took a doorway away and then someone else opened another doorway. I'm kind of wondering, was that just coincidence or was there a higher level something going on anyway that's when i created my own show which i had been fighting for years about not doing because doing radio even two days a week it's a lot of work it is you know if if you do it i mean you've done this podcast forever well not quite forever okay well i started when you guys started yeah well and you know how much work it is yeah and yeah. you have the, you don't do it live. You know, you do all these things on tape, right? Right, I do. Doing yeah. doing live is so much different. It reminds me of that um, uh, Bill O'Reilly, you know, YouTube thingy where he, you know, snaps at everybody and swears, you know, we'll do it live. Oh. We'll do it live. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they couldn't right. put a piece together and he used a lot of profanity. And, you know, people are running. Look, anything you've ever done in your life is going to wind up on YouTube. So for God's sake, don't do dumb, stupid things. <laughs> right. Again, I don't think I've done any dumb and stupid things that were caught on camera, but you never know. So if you search me on Google, someday you may find something dumb and stupid I've done. Who knows? That could be an incentive for people to go and look for dumb and stupid things I've done. Anyway, so one doorway closes, Nori acting bizarrely, because we were only talking about doing this special for the first flyby 
of the New Horizons New Horizons oh, right. mission to fly by Pluto. Yep. You know, discovered by my colleague Clive Tombo that I actually got to meet at JPL. I got to meet the discoverer of Pluto and spent one gorgeous afternoon just sitting there in Von Karman, just chatting, just talking with John Everhart and a bunch of other journalists, you know, about this is decades before, of course, the, the flyby mission of Pluto. <clears throat> and I was able to get on my show, on my special covering the flyby of Pluto. I was able to get Clyde's son. Yes, I remember. So I have him on my show, my Pluto special, which George kicked me off coast because for some reason he didn't want to do a couple little things I wanted to do. And he wound up in a bizarre fashion, which you never do. He wound up insulting me on the air as a guest. And that was my official separation from coast the doorway opens and Art says, would you like to do your own show on Dark Matter, my own network, following me? So Robin and I had long, long discussions. She ultimately said, well, it's probably, you probably should do it because I didn't want to do full-time radio. And I started out doing it five days yeah, a week. Yeah, you started off doing it, was it during insane. the week. It yeah. You know, and I had a producer, but we had no money. And, you know, Robin had her own career and she had her own show at that time. So she wasn't able to really help. And so it was it was incredibly. And the reason it was so stressful, the reason I had never wanted to do it is because what would happen to the research? Remember, we're the only folks looking seriously extraterrestrial archaeology. We're getting down to the end game where it's all going to fall out of Fibber McGee's closet. 99% 99% of our audience have no idea what I just said. No. <clears throat> and I'm going to be tied up doing a radio show, producing it and hosting it and getting guests and doing vetting and making sure that crackpots don't show up that can't document. You know, I I don't care how far out what you say is, just have documentation. It's why I had this whole Corey Good Secret Space Program thing that some of my friends and colleagues have been doing, I think, is crapola. Because you can claim anything. Right. I mean, look at the mainstream political process now of the country. There's half the country that believe total lies just because someone in authority claimed it. And they're not looking at how do they figure it out? How do they look at evidence? They're simply going on someone's word and their inclination and their rancor and their attitude that we're put upon, that we're the beset generation and that we're, you know, the, the people that have been, you know, sinned against. So there's a huge amount of angst in the body politic right now based on zero evidence. Claims are not evidence. 62 court cases dismissed. That's evidence. Otherwise, you don't believe in the American Constitution. And I happen to think it's a pretty damn important document. And it's worked fairly well for the last 250-some years. So um, into this milieu, the end game, as I said earlier, um, I was offered this slot my own show, to follow the Art Bell. And I thought, well, it's better than being nowhere. So I decided I would undertake this experiment, which was grueling. It was, you know, frankly, I I never want to live through those days again because it was an almost impossible job to put together a decent, professional, synoptic radio show that would be unique, that would cover unique stuff, that would be a meaningful contribution to the dialogue, that didn't 
we, you know, kind of an outlet for ego. Believe me, I've done enough media over the last several decades that if I never saw another television camera or radio mic, it would be totally fine with me. You've done a lot. When I was getting ready to do this episode with you, I found things that I had never seen before. <laughs> and like I said, I've been listening to you for, for decades and I saw things I couldn't believe. I thought, wow, Richard, you've done a lot. And I'd like to also add here that the entire archive of shows, because even though it was grueling for you, there were some excellent shows produced in the early days, as there are now. But if you join Club 19.5, and we're going to have to tell people what 19.5 <laughs> the significance of it is, because I squeezed you in between two I, I usually record on Wednesdays. I squeezed you in so that this could be the episode between 19 and 20 so that this is episode 19.5. <laughs> so I just want to let everybody know that the entire six years of archived shows of The Other Side of Midnight are available if you join Club 19.5. I think it's what, 33 cents a day. So it's yeah, yeah. 9.95 a month. And well, if, if if anybody likes Starbucks, you know, just quit one Starbucks coffee per week and you can pay for the show and then some. So there you go. There you go. And you'll have access to all of the shows with all of these fascinating guests. But like I said before, there are now thousands of hours. Yeah, thousands I've of spent hours, thousands of hours in front of this microphone doing the other side of midnight. So let me loop back. Okay. Because Art said, you know, and again, the, the big thing with Robin was, are you going to work with Art Bell? You know, he's such a, I mean. Robin did not like art, and someday maybe I will, you know, document, you know, some of the reasons why, because Robin had very, very good instincts, and the way art left the air himself after yeah. I got on is very bizarre, and yeah, I've been strange. trying to, I've been trying to figure it out, and someday when I, again, I like documenting things, I don't like just claiming things, mm -hmm. I like documentation, so when I put the rest of the documentation together, we may tell the untold story of what happened to art. Because I think that it might have been his invitation to me to have my own show that was a kiss of death for art show. Uh -huh. I can't prove it yet, but I think they were connected given the bizarre things that happened behind the scenes. So anyway, the, the big discussion between Robin and me was, are you going to do this? And are you going to do it with art? She said, no, no, no. And she finally came around. He had a conversation. He called her up, and they had like a two- or three-hour conversation. I do not know what they talked about. But her attitude after that was, okay, this 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 is something you probably should look into doing. So that was basically why I decided to do The Other Side of Midnight, which gets back to how did it wind up being called The Other Side of Midnight? Well, remember, Art has his show, Midnight in the Desert. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, he wants me to follow him. Art and I, philosophically, except for, you know, the subject we talked about, we really did not see eye to eye on almost anything. Politically, he was much more far right than I am. Um, uh, I had proposed that we do a show together on the whole concept of gun control, and he would bring his allies and I would bring my allies and we would basically meld the two shows together from midnight in the desert all the way through to the wee hours of the morning. And, you know, but that, at that time, gun control and gun issues and uh, gun terrorism, you know, was a very, very hot topic. Mm -hmm. It never happened because he, he literally could not see any benefit in airing, quote, the other side. 
But here I am to follow Bell, and I'm thinking, okay, what what can I do? And I was thinking back to my early, early days at WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut. And remember, I did a lot of work with TIC, wound up doing the Mars special, which in 65 was nominated for a Peabody Award. The Peabody Awards in radio was like the highest, it's like the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So so my, my show, my five hours, of which only a half hour is preserved because Dick Bertel literally edited down a half hour synthesis of the five hours and the rest is lost. They used the tape again and got oh. totally erased. You know, so it's gone. But we do have half an hour of a sampling of what we did in that rather historic show, The Night That Mariner 4 Flew by Mars. So I got to know, because of my entree into TIC, and I'd been a guest a lot with Bertel and some of the other guys. Back in those days, you know, they would talk and they would play music. They would talk and play music. And some shows were, you know, talk shows as a genre were not the, the had not taken over radio. At that time, there was a lot of, you know, old style uh, banter. There was morning drive time. There was evening drive time. Uh, there was, you know, disc jockeys. Uh, there was one guy out of a uh, uh, local radio station down in uh, Hartford called, uh, he called his, his, his air name was Sandy Beach. And he would run on weekends these Sandy Beach parties. And he would play music and he would talk about all kinds of things. And it, it was basically personalities in radio were personalities then. It wasn't, you know, yeah. canned, automatic, you know, corporate stuff as it is now mm-hmm. where every station and every market is the same because they're all part of a syndicate. You know, you can hear George driving across the southwestern deserts in the middle of the night as Rob and I used to do. And we were going to a conference and we would drive because we wanted to take Morala with us to give her another new audience to get used to. She loved to be in front of audiences. She was such a she was such a people person, our our little dog. Anyway, so um, I'm thinking what I'm going to call this, this show that's going to be on after art, Midnight in the Desert. And I remembered there was a guy that followed Bertel on WTIC, had the all-night show, and he called it The Other Side of the Day. And I'm thinking, and I thought, oh, my, what if I called this show, which follows art, The Other Side of Midnight, which was a pun. Right. It was following art, yeah. but it was also everything art didn't want to talk about politically. I would be the other side of midnight because I was very much different than Art Bell. So that's how the other side of midnight was born. I love it. Great story. And you're still standing. <laughs> so for if we did We're in the end game and I'm still alive and I'm still here. And I just I just wish Robin was here. For the audience, uh, Art Bell passed away in 2018, and uh, Richard's partner, Robin, uh, Dr. Robin Falkoff, she passed away in 2019. So it's been rough. Um, it's been awful. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty rough. Um, so we miss them, and we dedicate this to them, and. Uh, so they, they, they live on, their work lives on, uh, they will be remembered. And uh, 
so we you know just we think of them and we we hold them close in our hearts so we we must live on we must uh, move forward and uh carry the torch so Richard, you are, I, I promised that I was going to explain to the audience what 19.5 um, means. Mm. Okay. So let's go well, there. Okay. Um, I mean, we obviously haven't touched any of the Mars stuff. There's amazing new data. There are missions now that are sending back. The Chinese just landed an unmanned spacecraft on Mars and then have disappeared, which I think is not an accident. I think it's tied in directly with the huge geopolitical thing that's going on uh, around, you know, disclosure. Okay. The end game is now here. You know, Trump is history. Biden is president. Um, the the disclosure uh, format program political agenda, whatever you want to call it, is now moving on. That had to take a hiatus for those four years. So as one of my old Intel friends said um, many, many years ago, he said uh, the art form uh, in terms of me being on coast and all that, he says, is to stay relevant so that when it's time, I see. you're there. Mm -hmm. Well, be, by hit or miss and because of art and Robin and you and a bunch of other people, we're still here and the end game is now unfolding and it will involve not only – Things that go bump in the night, meaning UFOs, Tic Tacs, whatever, and who's driving and what's really out there and who's really flying them. And yes, there are real aliens, but I don't think that a lot of the folks that have been showing up are aliens. I think they're family. And that gets into the whole, you know, back engineering of what we found on Mars, what we found on the moon, uh, ancient archaeology, looking for the libraries. What is Perseverance's real mission? Why is the helicopter made the transition from a tech demo to an operational demo? What about the astonishing uh, Sidonia-sized pyramids that are at the south end of Jezero Crater, just a few miles away from Perseverance landed? Didn't hear about those, did you? Anyway, 19.5. As part of the last 30 or so years of doing this, I figured out that it's not really the ET civilizations out there, including our own stuff, that's important. It's the physics which has been revealed to us that has been shown to us in the geometry of how all these structures were built and laid out on the various terrains. And one of the recurring themes were a set of numbers and geometries which ultimately resolved down to a simple geometric form called a tetrahedron, which is a four-pointed, four-sided pyramid, if you count what it sits on. In two dimensions, a tetrahedron is an equilateral triangle, with each of the angles being 60, 60, 60, and each of the sides being the same length. But in three dimensions, the first geometric form that you can form when you go from a point to a line to a three-dimensional object, the first form you create is a tetrahedron. It turns out that the tetrahedral model, this geometric thing, is an excellent significator of this unseen physics which runs the entire universe, the kind of hidden physics that we have not been supposed to uh, 
uh, be allowed to really manipulate and see and work with because it gives us the secret of anti-gravity, infinite, unlimited, environmentally compatible energy, unlimited lifespans, biology that fixes itself, you know, the, 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 the basically the cure-all for all diseases, life as it should be lived as opposed to life we're now living. And the secrets of this are all embodied in the anti-gravity movements of these strange vehicles being tracked as part of the Nimitz experience, the New York Times story, the pilot sitting there on 60 Minutes, and Ashley Parker writing for the New York for the Washington Post a feature story as head bureau chief of the Wall Street of the uh, of the White House press corps um, there at, at the White House about UFOs. It's all part of the same, you know, tiny wimey ball of wax <clears throat> at the core of which is the fact that there are ruins out there, ruins built not by aliens, not by strangers, but by our great, 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 great grandmothers and grandfathers. We are the Martians. And when I do the next show with Laura, we will very mononymically in a narrative fashion, beginning, middle and end, lay out the research into the monuments of Mars and what's on the moon and what's on Pluto and all the other places in the solar system, which turn out to have ancient, stunning habitations and structures and archaeology that NASA and nobody else wants you to know about. And it's all going to fall out of that closet as soon as the Senate report acknowledges the reality that ETs and UFOs and the Earth is part of a much vaster sociological ecosystem of conscious beings in the galaxy all becomes a front-page story on the New York Times and the Washington Post. And coming back to 19.5, if you take a tetrahedron and you spin it, it gives you seven symmetry spins, seven degrees of rotation that are symmetrical. If you put it in a spinning planet... It predicts where the energy that's spinning and processing stellar objects, stars, the sun, galaxies, planets like the Earth, like Mars, like Venus, like maybe even Pluto, which is where the energy that we don't understand where it's coming from could be coming from. It marks on their surfaces where the energy comes up, which is the touch points of a tetrahedron in a sphere above and below the equatorial equator of a rotating object. So the 19.5 <clears throat> applies to 19.5 degrees north or 19.5 degrees south in a 360 coordinate system, which is not arbitrary. It's part of the physics. It's why it's been handed down to us from the Sumerians and Babylonians through 6,000 years. It's the keys to the functioning of the real universe and that number 19.5 as i say in one of my intros on the show is the most exclusive club in the world because it's access to the most exclusive information which has been kept from us for literally thousands of years and which now because of the politic machinations in washington dc and a Senate report in the hands of Senator Rubio seems at the end of this month, the end of June, about to be reborn. And if that's all going to happen and it moves in the trend curve that I am projecting, a 
astonishing things are going to happen to make all of this other reality suddenly be very, very real to an awful lot of people who have no idea that any of this has been going on. And that's where we introduce part two. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Richard. Please visit the website Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This episode is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available next week on our YouTube channel, Jungian and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying A-L-E-X-A, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with very special thanks to my guest, Richard C. Hoagland, I'm Laura London, and you've been listening to a very special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Or, 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 or